Well, the last time we were together, it's been several weeks now, we began to consider the final portion of Ephesians chapter 3. We were in the third chapter of the book of Ephesians. When we first began to study the book of Ephesians several months ago, we learned that the book is split into two sections. We learned that the first three chapters teach what we call positional truth. It's, it's a section of positional truth which really just tells us this is where we learn our position before God. This is where we find the amazing resources that are available to us as we are in Christ. We have, the Bible tells us, in Christ, every spiritual blessing. We have every spiritual blessing in Christ. We have been bathed in His grace. In Christ, we have been adopted into His family. And in Christ, we have been sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit. And in Christ, we are welcome now to walk right directly into the presence of the Almighty God with complete confidence. And we can talk to Him just as a child would speak to His Father. In Christ, we have that available to us. Then in the second section of the book of Ephesians, chapters 4 through 6, we find what we call practical truth. It is here in these three chapters that we learn the practical implications of your position before God. Does that make sense? So it sounds like this. This is how it works with Paul. First, we get positional truth. Paul says, based on your position, based on who you are in Christ, this is how you then should behave. That's how it works with Paul. In his epistles, practice will always follow position. Paul will always establish your position, and then he tells you, based on that position in Christ, this is how your practice ought to be. This is how you should live. And so in the first three chapters of the book of Ephesians, we learned how much we have, we said in the checking account. We learned how much God's resources actually mean to us, how vast the resource that is available to us. It is God telling us how much is in our bank account. And then in the last three chapters, it is God telling us how to spend the money that's available to us or how to spend the resource that's available to us. And then the last time we were together, we were in the transitional passage between chapters 3 and 4, which tells us how to write the check, which will make that resource available to us. Now, this passage is the one that we started a couple of weeks ago, and we're going to finish it up today, but it's the passage that links together the whole book of Ephesians. And this is one of the most important passages in all of Ephesians, and that's why we're taking an extra week this week to understand understand it and make sure we have a grasp on it. So as we looked last time at verses 14 through 21, we made it all the way through verse 17, and I want to just recap that for you this morning. Now, before we read that, I want to just remind you that what we have here in the original Greek language is a series of what we call purpose clauses. So we have a series of purpose clauses, and what that means is that it is a progressive series. So what that means to you and I practically is that we must take them in order. We must begin with step one. We can't skip any steps. You begin with step one, and then you go to step two, and so on. You must begin at step one and work your way through the process. You can't skip anything. And in the Greek language, in this section, it's all tied together with this Greek word, 
which is hina. Now, hina, a good way for us to translate that word would be to say, in order that. Okay, so I want you to just hang on to that, because you're going to need that today. So step one occurs, hina, in order that. Step two may occur, hina. Step three may occur. Do you see that? So we must do step one, and then we are able to go to step two, and then step three, and so on as you go through the entire passage. So I want to take you now to Ephesians chapter 3, and we're going to begin in verse 14. For this reason, well, for what reason, Paul? Paul says, well, based on everything you've learned in chapter 2. So based on everything we've learned in chapter 2, Paul says, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. So the last time we were together, we looked at verses 16 and 17 at some length, and we discovered some very interesting things while we were there. First, we found in verse 16 that we would be strengthened where? In our inner man. We would be strengthened in our inner man. And we noted as we looked at that, how much time, how much money, how much resource people spend building up their outer man while they totally neglect the inner man. They work to make the outer man as healthy and as prosperous as possible. They work to make the outer man as strong as they possibly can. And at the same time, the inner man is emaciated and he is weak. How do we strengthen the inner man? We strengthen the inner man by spending time in the Word of God. We strengthen the inner man by spending time in the Word of God. And we allow the Word of God to shape our thought. We allow the Word of God to shape our minds. We allow it to shape our character. We meditate on it. We keep it in front of ourselves day in and day out. We allow it to be in the front of our minds all of the time. We pray continually, as Paul says. We communicate with God constantly. And then, as we reach points of decision in our daily lives, we allow our decisions to be guided by the Holy Spirit. And as we do that, our inner man becomes strong. As we do that, we are exercising the muscles of the inner man. We are building up his muscles. We are guarding his diet. Why? Hina, in order that, verse 17 may happen. Are you following me? So what happens in verse 17? Well, when we strengthen our inner man by living according to the Spirit, the Bible tells us that Christ may dwell in our hearts. Do you see that? And we decided last time we were together that it's not the best interpretation to say that He lives or that He dwells in our hearts, but we decided the best interpretation is to say that He is comfortable there or He is able to settle down in. Katoikeo, he settles down in our hearts. He feels at home in our hearts. And what I mean by that is he's not constantly walking around trying to tidy things up. He's not constantly walking around in your hearts trying to clean the closets. He's not always looking under the beds. He's not constantly scrubbing the sin out of your lives. But he's able to settle in and he's able to feel at home there. And so now today... We're going to take the next step, and I'm going to show you what happens when Christ settles in. I'm going to show you what happens when Christ is in a place where he's able to katoikeo, where he's able to feel at home, where he's to settle right down in your heart, and that's the next step of our progression. But before we do that, I'd like to introduce you to the king of butterflies. Do we have that image? This is the monarch butterfly, the king of butterflies. You see him every year, don't you? usually beginning around the middle of May. Does it sound about right? 
And it's a really amazing picture. And we're just going to leave that image up for a couple of minutes here. But you see, every year begins a cycle of four generations of monarch butterflies. Did you know that about them? In March or April, the eggs are laid on milkweed plants. Those eggs then will hatch into baby caterpillars, which hatch in about four days after they've been laid. Then what happens is the baby caterpillar will begin to eat as much milkweed as he possibly can in order to grow. So the baby caterpillar begins to eat and to eat, and after about two weeks, he will eventually be fully grown, this little caterpillar, and he'll find a place to attach itself so that it can start the process of metamorphosis. How many of you have ever heard of metamorphosis? And so what he does is this little caterpillar will attach itself to a a stem of a leaf using this silk, this form of silk, and it transforms itself into a, a chrysalis, okay? Now, Inside the chrysalis, the old body parts of the caterpillar are undergoing this absolutely remarkable transformation, and that's the metamorphosis. After about 10 days in the cocoon, the monarch butterfly makes its way out and it flies away. After about 10 days. And then he flies away and he begins to feed on flowers and he just enjoys the short life that he has left, which only lasts two to six weeks. After he has made his way out and he's lived for two to six weeks, the first generation monarch butterfly will then lay eggs and after he does that or she does that, he will die. And then comes generation number two. The second generation of monarch butterflies is born in May and June, somewhere in there, and the third generation of monarch butterflies will be born around July or August. Now these monarch butterflies will all go through the exact same life cycle that the first generation went through, dying two to six weeks after it becomes a beautiful monarch butterfly. But then around September or October, the fourth generation of butterflies is born. And this happens every year. And this fourth generation of butterflies is a little bit different than the other three. You see, the fourth generation of monarch butterflies does not die after two to six weeks. This monarch butterfly does not like to live in the single-digit Wisconsin weather as much as you do. The monarch butterfly can't survive in that kind of climate. So every year, the fourth generation of the monarch butterflies travels a couple of thousand miles to warmer climates like Mexico and Southern California. And that's what you're seeing in this image right here. All of these monarch butterflies are making their way out of Wisconsin, and they're on their way to California, they're on their way to Mexico, they're migrating. And when they get there, after they've made the journey and they get where they're going, the monarch is going to find a tree where it's going to hibernate for six to eight months until it's time to start the whole process all over again. Did you know any of that about the monarch butterfly? Isn't that interesting? So I'm just going to leave that there, okay? We'll come back to that. So with all of that in mind, I want to take you now to our passage for today And I'm going to help solidify in your mind the progressive concept of Paul's writing here in Ephesians chapter 3. And so I'd like us to pick it up in verse 16. Now, this is what it says. That according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ, Hina, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love, and we're going to stop right there. So you now have been made strong in your inner man, right? 
You have been exercising the muscles of your inner man. You've been following the leading of the Holy Spirit in order that Christ may settle down and be at home in your hearts. Christ wants to feel at home in your hearts. The result of Christ feeling at home in your hearts is that you are made to have become rooted and grounded in love. Do you see that? You are made to have become rooted or grounded in love. And I want to just take a couple seconds here if I could, and I want to explain these words rooted and grounded for just a moment if I could do that. Because they give us some very, very clear imagery that I believe that we need to understand. Now, both of these verbs in the original Greek language is in what we call the passive voice. And so what that means to us is that, once again, is that we do absolutely nothing. You don't do anything to cause yourselves to be rooted or grounded in love, but someone else is taking that action on you, and someone else or something else, some other force, is causing you to be rooted or grounded in love. Do you see that? This is very important for you to understand. Some of you who have a green thumb will be able to understand it like this. I want you to imagine a potted plant that you have in your home. When you got this plant, it was small, it was immature. You cared for it, you tended to it, and it began to grow. Isn't that the way it's supposed to, unless you're in my house and it doesn't happen that way. But eventually what happens is this plant grows and grows and then eventually what happens? It's going to need a bigger pot, isn't it? Eventually, you need to put it in a bigger pot or you need to move it into your backyard. And so to do that, maybe you soften the soil a little bit and maybe you mix up a special blend of potting soil and miracle Grow, whatever your recipe is, just to make sure that the plant takes root when you move it. That's what's happening here in verse 17. Do you see this? That is what's happening here in verse 17. The plant has not done anything. All the plant does is that it continues to grow, but the caregiver is the one who prepares the soil. The caregiver is the one who puts the plant in the pot, and the plant just does what comes naturally. The plant just grows. It just extends its roots. That's all that it does. The plant has been made by the caregiver to have grown its roots in the soil that the caregiver has prepared for it. Does that make sense? It has been made to have become rooted. And that is the language here in Ephesians chapter 3. You have been made to have become rooted. The word grounded is just another way of explaining the same concept. For all of our construction guys, the most important part of any building is what? It's the foundation, isn't it? It's the foundation. So when you're erecting a building... If you don't have the foundation right, there's a really good chance that nothing else is going to be right, isn't there? The Greek verb here for this foundation is themeliao. Now, I want you to get this. Themeliao, it means to make a foundation. Now, remember, this is in the passive voice, okay? So this is in the passive voice. So no building ever made itself to have been built on a foundation, did it? No building ever built itself upon a foundation of any kind. And that's what's happening here in Ephesians 3. You have been made to have been built upon a foundation. You have been made to have been rooted in the soil. You haven't done anything. The caregiver, the builder, is the one who makes it happen. You don't have to worry about it. You don't have to concentrate on it. You don't have to focus about it. You don't have to trouble yourselves with it. All you have to do is to do what comes naturally. The builder 
He has already done all the work. All you have to do is let your roots grow, man. All you have to do is let those roots grow. Now, what is the soil in which you have been made to take root? Do you see what that is there in this verse? What is the foundation that you have been made to have been built upon? Look at verse 17 again. It is what? It is love. It is love. That's the soil. That's the foundation. Now, over the years, I've told you that as we've been together, that there are several different forms of love. And I want to make sure that I reiterate that for you. In the ancient Greek language, which is the language of the New Testament, there are several different kinds of love. First, there is the philos, which is the friendship or the affectionate type of love. This is the love that you have for someone who is beloved to you. This is something like a family member. This is a friend. This is where we get, this is where you'll see brotherly love. Philadelphia, that's where that comes from. It's love for one another. Someone who is beloved to you. And then there is the eros, which is the love of sexual desire, and it's the love of passion. This is where we get our word erotic. And then there is the third and the highest form of love, and this is what? Agape, which is the very highest form of love. This is the love of the will. This is the love of sacrifice. This is the love of a determined heart. This is the love which is most commonly spoken of in the New Testament. Did you know that? That's why we have to pay attention to what's happening here in Ephesians 3 because that's what we have. We have this agape love. Listen to me, friends. It is God's desire that people of His family have agape for one another. It is God's desire that the family of Christ be rooted and be built upon the foundation of agape for one another. Do you understand? That's how we feel in our families, isn't it? We love one another with sacrifice for one another. We're willing to bear one another with one another. In, in our difficult times, we care for one another. We sacrificially give. We do whatever it takes to, to bring comfort to another member of the family, don't we? That's what God expects of the family of Christ. I want you to know that. God expects the family of Christ to love one another. Adults, God expects the family of Christ to love one another. Why do you think the fourth generation monarch butterfly makes the 2,000 mile trip all the way down to Mexico every year? Do you think that he comes out of his little cocoon and says to himself, man, what a ripoff. <laughs> Why couldn't I have been the third generation? But here I am, I'm the fourth generation, and now I have to fly 2,000 miles to carry the entire species on my back. I am responsible for the survival of this entire species. Do you think he wakes up and he says that? I don't think he does either. Do you think that he plots out on Google Maps the path that he's going to take to get there? I don't think he does either. Do you think that he pauses to consider anything at all? Do you think he pauses to consider if he's packed all of the bags and made sure that he's turned the oven off before he leaves? No, he doesn't do that, does he? What does he do? He just starts flying. Why does he do that? Why does he just get up and start flying? Have you thought about that? It's because it's his natural instinct. It's because that's the way God designed him. He simply is reacting to the program that God has designed deeply within his body, deeply within his DNA. Nobody had to teach him. He has been taught by God. He has been taught by God, and so all he has to do is get up and fly, right? Can I challenge you with something? That's the way... Agape love works for the believer. Did you know that? 
That's the way it works for the believer. The believer just does it. Jesus says in John chapter 13, verses 34 through 35, you'll remember this, a new commandment I give to you. That you love one another. This is fresh. This is something you've never experienced before. My command is that you love one another just as I have loved you. So also you are to love one another. By this, I love this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you do what? Love one another. Kids, Jesus commanded us to love one another. Jesus commanded us to love one another. How do we know that the fourth generation monarch is the fourth generation? How do you know that? Because he's the one that gets up and flies to Mexico, right? He's the one that gets up and flies. How do we know that the disciples of Christ are truly disciples of Christ? Because he's the one who gets up and loves. He's the one who loves one another, friends. God has taught them to do it. He didn't have to teach himself to do it. No one else had to instruct him on it. He was taught by God to love the body of Christ with this kind of love. Do you believe what I'm telling you? Take a look at 1 Thessalonians 4.9. For you yourselves have been what? You yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. It is written in your hearts just as surely as the fourth generation monarch has written in his heart that he needs to get up and fly. So it is written in the believer's heart that you need to get up and love. It's not something you have to force out. It's not something that you have to push out of your heart and muster up. If you're a true believer in Jesus Christ, everyone is going to know it. You have been taught by God to love, kids. You have been taught by God to love. And that love will find its expression in how you treat the people around you. Do you know that? That love will find its expression in how you treat all of the people who sit near you, all the people who work with you, all the people who live with you. I remember years ago, and I haven't heard it in a long time. How many of you, <laughs> how many of you ever heard the expression when you were in church, I love you in the Lord? You remember that one? I, I just love that. You know what that really means, don't you? It means I can't stand you the rest of the week. <laughs> but on Sunday, I feel like I'm going to hell if I don't tell you that I love you, right? Yeah, that's what that means. That's right. So listen, with true believers, love is just a natural expression. Love just comes out. It just expresses itself. It just comes flowing out of your life as you are in Christ. Listen, when you are strengthening your inner man, when Christ is able to settle down and make himself at home in your hearts, listen to me, your roots are grown deep into the soil of love. Your building then is built on the firm foundation of agape love and sacrificial giving, sacrificial caring for one another will just naturally come gushing right out. You don't have to force it. It will just come right out. As a pattern of life, you don't have to think about it. You don't have to concentrate on it. You don't have to push. It's just one of those distinguishing traits that allows people to identify you as a Christian. It's one of those things that they can point to you and say, you know what, I know that guy's a believer because I see the way he treats other believers. That's why it's such a problem for me when believers don't love one another. I want you to hear this. This is why it is such a problem for me when believers don't get along. You see, if you are a believer and you are not loving other people in the body of Christ this way, there's a problem. If you claim to be a believer and you don't love people like this who are in the body of Christ, there's a problem with your claim. 
If as a believer, there are people in the body of Christ that you don't love, if as a believer, there are people that you close out and refuse to serve, listen to me, it is not because you are incompatible with them, it's because you are disobedient to the Word of God. It's natural. It just comes right out. Two believers who are married to one another should never utter the words, I just don't love her anymore. If that's the case, you're living in disobedience to the Word of God and you need to repent. The command of Christ is to love one another as I have loved you. So for you to say, I just don't love her, is for you to declare that you are openly disobedient and rebellious to the very clear instruction of the Word of God. You are openly disobedient to the command of Christ. You are to love her. You are to sacrifice for her. Even the Bible says, as the Lord has loved and sacrificed for the church. That's how you are to love her. You love her because Christ commanded you to. It's not easy every day, is it? But it just naturally comes out as a pattern of life. It's not a feeling. It's not eros. It's not a passion. It's a deliberate action. You just do it. The love of Christ in which you are rooted, the love of Christ upon which your foundation is built, is different than the love of the world. Do you understand that? The love that you have in your hearts, the love that you have for your husband and your wife, the love that you have for the people sitting next to you in this church is different than the love of the world. You see, the love of the world says, I will love her until someone more attractive comes along. The love of Christ says, the more I love her, the more attractive she becomes to me. The love of the world will say, I love you until you offend me. The love of Christ says, I love you even though you never stop offending me. That's the kind of love that should fill the body of Christ. Do you hear me? That's the kind of love that belongs in the church. That's the kind of love that every single person sitting right here in the chairs at Root River Church should have for all of the other people in this room. If it's not, friends, I want to tell you that we need to repent and we need to obey the clear command of the Word of God. That's His command. I want to take you now, if I could, to verse 18. And although you don't see it here in your translation, it's there. In the Greek text, verse 18 begins with our word hina, which means in order that. So the next step of our progression sounds like this. Verse 18, hina, in order that you may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length, the height and the depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Listen to me. Once we are made to have our roots grown deep within the sacrificial love of Christ, we begin to take hold of, if it were possible at all, the immeasurable love that Christ has for you. Do you see that? Once you begin to express yourself in sacrificial agape love for those who are near you, you begin to understand just the very tip of the iceberg of the love that Christ has for you. As you sacrificially give yourself to love those around you, willfully giving up your desires and the things that you want and the things that you need so that you can meet their needs, then you begin to get a small taste of the sacrifice that Christ made for you. Do you understand that? And if you're not able to make that expression of sacrifice for the people in your family, if you're not able to make that expression of sacrifice for the people of the church body, then there is reason to wonder if you really are a believer, isn't there? In His great love, Christ gave up all the prerogative of heaven. I want you to think about that for a minute. 
In His great love, He laid down all the privilege of heaven to willfully and to purposefully seek you out. He did that to come find you. In His great love, He became human to die an excruciating death on your behalf so that you could be made to have been brought near to Him in the passive voice again. You have been made to have been brought near to Him because of His love for you. It's not until you sacrifice for one another, friends, that you can begin to understand the great love that God has for you. It's not until you begin to sacrifice for the people sitting next to you that you can begin to understand the love that God must have had for you that He sent Christ to die for you while you were yet sinners, the Bible teaches us. And I just want you to know that in our humanity, I understand We become so focused on ourselves, don't we? It's true. We are so dialed in. We are so finely in tune with ourselves. We are so understanding of our own problems. We are so concerned about ourselves that we really quickly and we can really easily identify every single injustice or minor mistreatment that we may have ever encountered, can't we? Many of you can look back for years and think of every, every time you've ever been mistreated at work by a loved one, whatever it is. We're so consumed with ourselves, we can't even begin to perceive that there are other people in this room that have needs. You hear me? We become so wrapped up in ourselves that we don't realize that the people sitting right next to you have great need. So busy looking inwardly that the people we rub elbows with make absolutely no difference to us. They have no impact on us. We're so consumed with our own wants. We're so consumed with our own desires. We're so consumed with our own needs that we can't even begin to perceive the needs of other people around us. And if we do, we wouldn't dare sacrifice ourselves for them. Why? Because that would just create more inequality for me. But I want you to understand that when you force yourself to sacrifice for others in the family of Christ, you will begin to understand the sacrifice that Christ made for you. And what is the purpose of that? Hina. In order that, verse 19, in order that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Do you see that? Our four-step progression looks like this. The strengthening of your inner man leads to Christ living in you, which leads to you having His immeasurable love in order that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Can you think about that for a moment? It's all that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Not that you can just have a little taste. Not that you can have a small glimpse of who God is. But every characteristic of God that you can imagine fills you. You are filled with all the character, with all the nature of God. You are plerao. You are completely filled. Your life is dominated by the very fullness of God. Every characteristic of God. Think about that. Every characteristic. His love, His mercy, His patience, His kindness, His righteousness, His justice, His wisdom, all of that fills or dominates your very lives. You're completely filled with all the very character of God. Listen to me. The same God who created the heavens and the earth with the sound of His voice fills you in His fullness. The same God, kids, 
who created the universe lives inside of you. He is resident inside of you. Listen, my friends, there is no time, there is no situation, there is no encounter in which God cannot use you in all of His fullness. Do you see it? There is no chance that He is unable to use you in all of His fullness. The only thing that stops the full expression of the fullness of God from coming out in your lives is your willingness to submit to Him. That's it. There's nothing that can stop the will of God from being accomplished in your life. If you're willing to strengthen your inner man, if you're willing to allow Christ to become comfortable in your hearts, if you're willing to allow yourselves to be rooted in the, in the soil of love, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God, all of His wisdom to discern His will in your life, all of His power to accomplish His purpose is now alive in you. Do you see this? It's now alive in you. Now that you have gone through the entire progression, now that you have started at the very beginning, now that you have written and signed the check, now that you have access to all of His resource, verse 20 tells us, now, now that you have done all of this stuff, now to Him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we can ask or think according to the power at work within us, to Him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Do you see this? Listen to me. The resource is there. The resource has been there. You have just learned to write the check to cash in on it. That's what these last two sessions have been in the book of Ephesians chapter 3. You have just learned to write the check to cash in on it. Now listen to me. Now that you have strengthened your inner man, now that you have allowed Christ to settle in into an uncluttered heart, now that you live a life characterized by the sacrificial love of Christ for all the saints, now that you have begun to understand His immeasurable love, now that you have all the fullness of the Almighty God living within you, now He is able to do. You see what I'm saying? Now He is able to do, and it is only you and your willingness to walk through the progression in your lives which limits God's ability to do in your lives. That's it. So why is it that God wants us to be empowered with the power of God that works within us? I want you to take a look at verse 21. To Him be glory where? In the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. God wants you to be empowered that He may receive glory in the church and in Christ Jesus forever. That's why He wants you to be empowered. Everything, as we have, have noted before, is done for the glory of God. Everything is to the glory of God. That's why you were created, to bring glory to God. Think about that. Think about the resource. So in closing, I want to challenge you this morning if I could. I'd like you to Think about I'd like to just ask you to think of what it is that God may want to do through you and through Root River Church right here in this community. What does verse 20 say? I want you to look at this. It says that He is able to do all that you wrote down on your piece of paper. Right? You with me? Does it say that? Does it say that He's able to do all that you have asked and imagine and written down on your paper. It says that He's able to do all that you can ask or think, doesn't it? 
No, it does not. It says that he's able to do more than you can ask or think, doesn't it? No, it does not. It says that he is able to do far more than you can ask or think, right? No, that's not what it says. It says he is able to do abundantly far more than all that you were able to ask or think. Listen to me. Take what you have written down on that piece of paper and multiply it by abundantly far more than you have written down. And that's what he is able and is willing to do that he may receive glory right here at Root River Church in Christ Jesus forever, the Bible teaches. He's willing, he is able to do that. And he's able to do that through the power and the fullness of the Almighty God that is now resident inside of you. But before you get there, you need to strengthen your inner man in order that Christ may feel at home in your hearts, in order that you can be rooted and grounded in love, in order that you can understand how inconceivable, how immeasurable his love is for you, in order that you may be filled with all the fullness of the Almighty. God, you understand? Then, now he is able to do more, far more, abundantly far more than you were able to write down on your piece of paper. It's inconceivable. This is what God is willing to do right here in this church body. Do you know that? Father, I pray that you would help Root River Church to strengthen our inner man. Lord, I pray that you would give us a greater passion for your word. I pray that you would give us a greater passion for time alone and prayer with you. I pray that you would give us a greater desire to submit to the prompting of the Holy Spirit in our lives. I pray, God, that you would purify our hearts. I pray that you would purify our minds that Christ may feel at home in our hearts. Help us to declutter, to clean up in our lives. Fill us with a sacrificial love of God that we can serve the church body, that the community around us may know that we are true disciples of Jesus Christ. Pray, God, that you would fill us with your love that we may sacrificially reach out to those in the community of Franklin who are hurting, those of the community of Franklin who need to hear the message of hope that's found in Jesus Christ. I pray that you would help us, God, to begin to understand your incomprehensible love for us that we could be filled with all the fullness of God and now God and now I ask that you will look at all of these pieces of paper we've jotted down the things that our minds our limited minds are able to ask and imagine in our hearts and I pray God that you would do abundantly far more than all of us were able to ask and to conceive and to imagine our own minds. And I pray, God, that you would move mightily through Root River Church and the community of Franklin and the surrounding areas, that we may bring you the glory that you deserve in Jesus Christ.